There's, I'm just so grateful for the gifts we have in this congregation. Mike, thank you for that powerful, uh, dramatic reading. And thank you, Birds and um, Brian Bell. We can call that band the Birds and the Bell. Um, but seriously, thank you. Shannon, thank you for your leadership, too. It's a, it's a gift to have so many gifts in, in one place. Um, so when I was in college, I, uh, my college campus was visited by this, this guy a couple times a year. Um, he would stand in the, uh, you know, that space, the, the, the officially sanctioned free speech zone, which always, it's always an exciting space to be in a college campus. Um, you know, they got the permits, um, so they really want to talk. And he would always bring two things, a Bible and a bar stool. And so we would, my friends and I would jokingly refer to him as Bible and bar stool man. He's like the world's worst superhero, bringing condemnation and judgment uh, to every college campus in the North Texas area. Uh, he was a, a pastor. I, I think Church of Christ, apologies, COC folks, sorry, not sorry. That's probably why you're here, um, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, um, and so he would, you know, his, his sort of routine, the, the overarching view is that we were going to hell. That was sort of the general gist. And you know, there's a lot of ways you can go to hell. Did y'all know that? There's so many ways. Very few ways to go to heaven, turns out. A um, lot of ways to go to hell. Uh, but he would take the time, explain them all to us. Um, so uh, sometimes he would speak more generally about abominations and sin and judgment. And, and sometimes he would drill down into extremely specific uh, theological positions, really strange, and, and at times extremely like offensive ways. One in particular has always stayed with me. It's the one time that I really distinctly remember hearing what he said because it was just so, so shocking to me. He said that people with disabilities, um, people with different disabilities, ranging from you know very extreme um, physical or, or cognitive disabilities to even um, like my astigmatism, right, um, and generally poor eyesight. Everything in between is a product um, not of genetics or, or of anything else but of sin. That's what he was teaching us, um, that it was either your personal sin or generational sin, like it was because my, my parents or my grandparents. So I started billing my parents for my optometry appointments. Um, <laughs> I cope with humor, if you haven't picked up on that. Um, I mean, a truly, like, reprehensible uh, line of theology. But, but here's the really shocking thing, is that it's actually biblical, unfortunately. He could quote Exodus to us, where it says words like that. And quite frankly, at a time in history, including the time when Jesus lived, that was the prevailing theology. So in a weird way, he was just preaching some very offensive version of, of orthodoxy, um, to be quite honest. And so today, I, I, want us to, I want us to wrestle with Bible and Barstool, man. I, I, want, I want us to wrestle with uh, the story in Luke chapter 5 that we're about to read, and I want us to ask the really big question of what does Jesus do when he encounters teaching that is rooted in shame? unfortunately so much of teaching that can happen in religious spaces and including and especially christian ones can actually be teaching that is rooted in shame and here's the, i'll give you the, the good news out of the gates is that jesus does confront that and i want us to look at how and the fact that luke tells this story early on chapter five his public ministry has just begun and jesus takes it head on so in luke chapter five beginning in verse 17 it says this. This is, this is how Luke tells the Jesus story. 
He says, one day when Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and legal experts were sitting nearby. So if you don't know Pharisees and legal experts, these are um, leaders. They're not priests, um, but, but they're kind of teachers and, and, and local leaders and authorities who, who kind of saw themselves as, as like God's attorneys and, and God's uh, police of righteousness. Uh, they, they became obsessed with the law, and, and the law was sort of this concept of what it meant to live faithfully under God's will, but it also meant specifically a list of 600 plus rules that people were meant to follow in their society. So that's who's gathered around Jesus. It it says that they had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So already Jesus is is amassing this attention. They're gathering around to see how far outside the lines is Jesus going to color, really. Now the power of the Lord, that's the language that Luke uses for God, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Some, of, or some men were bringing a man who was paralyzed, lying on a cot. They wanted to carry him in and place him before Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they took him up on the roof and lowered him, cot and all, through the roof tiles into the crowded room in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The legal experts and Pharisees began to mutter amongst themselves, who is this who insults God? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus recognized what they were discussing and responded, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but so that you will know that the human one has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus now spoke to the man who was paralyzed as he said, I say to you, Get up, take your cot, and go home. Right away, the man stood up before them, picked up his cot, and went home, praising God. All the people were beside themselves, filled with wonder. Filled with awe, they glorified God, saying, We've seen unimaginable things today. For the word of God in Scripture, and for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. So as I said before, there's this prevailing theology in Jesus' day within uh, these communities, within the Jewish communities, that um, the, the ways in which um, our, our bodies can, can suffer or fail us or be different, th- those, were, um, those were a result not of anything other than personal or generational sin. And this is a theology that this man would have been presented with personally, and if I'm reading between the lines and understanding the picture that Luke is painting here, that he had internalized himself, this shame-filled theology. I am the cause of this. I'm the reason that this is happening. Now, I notice a few things in this story that give me a lot of hope. The first is I notice his friends, these friends. The man who's paralyzed, his friends are some of my favorite characters in the Gospel of Luke because these are people you need in your corner in life, right? Not only do they carry him on this cot all the way up to this crowded house and the crowd around the house, but then they they see the crowd. They know they're not going to break through. But rather than simply saying, you know what, we should have gotten here earlier, we're not going to make it in. Or rather than saying, excuse me, can can we make it through, we're really hoping. No, what they do is they go full redneck and say, hey, y'all, watch this. And they haul him, (laughs) caught and all, up on top of the roof, 
right? This is insane. And then what's crazy is if you listen closely to the story, there's, it's not like these, these homes have sunroofs, right? It's a, it's a roof. It's meant to keep stuff out. So it says that they are like pulling apart the tiles on the roof. In the Gospel of Mark, when it tells this story, it's described as like a mud roof. They are literally clawing through the roof to make a hole to lower their friend in. These guys are crazy in the best possible way. I love these friends. In fact, they're so crazy in the best possible way that if you notice, it's actually their faith that Jesus recognizes, which is interesting, which is unique, because in a lot of the healing stories, that the person that Jesus is healing, he says, because of your faith, you've been healed, but, but not here. If you listen closely, you notice the scripture said, because of their faith, Jesus noticed their faith, the friend's faith, he said, friend, now he addresses the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever been in a place where all you saw in yourself was shame and guilt, worthlessness. You didn't deserve to be carried into the healer's home. You were a burden to, to bear. Maybe that's just me. Have you ever been in a place where you had friends or loved ones who were able to speak into your life and say, no, you deserve more than this. You are worthy of love and grace and mercy and goodness, even though that was really hard to hear. Have you ever been in a place like that? Maybe you're in a place like that right now. I love these friends because I believe that God put us on this earth to be in relationship with people. And frequently it is our friends and loved ones who can look at us and see us in whatever kind of shame-filled, internalized place that we may be in. Maybe it's that negative internal critic, that negative self-talk that just tells you, I'm not worth it, I'm not worth it, I'm not worth it. And the friends say, yes, you are. We're getting up on the daggum roof. We will claw our way inside if we have to because you are worth it. Friends, that's my prayer that, we, that I have for this community, that we would continue to be a place where that kind of friendship, that kind of loving community could take place. I'm looking out at a room, and I know there are people at home who are the types of friends that would claw through a roof. If you would claw through a roof to get your friend in front of the healer, say amen. amen. I would hope that's who we claim to be. I hope that I'm looking at a room full of people who are insane in the best way. Right? I'll judge by the chuckles. That's, that sounds accurate to you, too. Now, I also notice where Jesus starts. Jesus doesn't start with the healing, which is kind of interesting to us, perhaps. No, he starts by saying, friend, your sins have been forgiven. I wonder if that's because he knew this man was paralyzed in more ways than one. He had been so internalized by this shame-filled theology. He had, he had been so chained up, bound up within this judgment that he had been presented with his, his whole life long. That he, he needed to push through that before he could ever experience any, anything else. I think it's, it's powerful that Jesus sees this man, sees the state of his heart where he's actually at, and offers words that are going to heal him in more ways than one in that moment. You know, the man's friends see him not as a burden to bear, but as a blessing worth carrying into the healer's home. And Jesus sees this man not as a wretched sinner, but as a friend. That's how he calls him friend. My friends, we are invited to see ourselves not with the eyes of judgment or shame, but with the eyes of Jesus, with the eyes of a loving friend. And maybe you're not in a position right now where you can see that. And so my encouragement to you would be to reach out. That kind of, that kind of internalization, that kind of self-talk, it thrives in isolation. Jesus is showing us that part of the healing is by reaching out and allowing other friends to carry us. 
allowing that kind of loving community to reach out and take us up when we can't take up ourselves. Now, I notice, too, that Luke separates the forgiveness and the healing explicitly with this interlude of these Pharisees and tax collectors muttering to themselves, right? Luke is, like, trying to tell us there's something pulling these two things apart, and notice what happens in between. Beginning in verse 21, it says this. Jesus is going to confront the source of his shame directly. The legal experts and Pharisees began to mutter amongst themselves, and they say, who is this who insults God? He's insulting God with this forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins, they say. Jesus recognized that they were what they were discussing and responded, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? So the Pharisees, they're, they're beginning to build this case of, of essentially blasphemy. Again, they see themselves as kind of like God's attorneys. So they're beginning to build this case of blasphemy against Jesus, this idea that Jesus is insulting or an affront to God, that they need to defend God's honor and their orthodoxy, the way that they rightly understand who God is and how God works. God is the only one that forgives sins. You can't forgive those sins. That man needs to understand that he is being punished. That is what we are here to, pr to protect and defend. You know, orthodoxy is one of those tricky words. They're so offended by how Jesus seems to blaspheme against their orthodox view. Orthodoxy is a word that pops up a lot in Christian circles these days. And if you're unfamiliar with the term, it, it quite literally means like right thought or, or, or right belief. And um, the funny thing about the word is there's really not a clear definition as to what is orthodox theology or orthodox views. If you ask different people what orthodox means, you'll diff get different answers. For instance, right now in the Methodist church, there are people who are choosing to leave the United Methodist denomination because they say orthodoxy includes traditional views on uh, marriage um, and on how people uh, form families and, and love one another. That, that, they say, is orthodoxy. But then my question is, so what, what, what else is or is not orthodoxy? Because at one point, it was orthodoxy to not allow women like my wife Reverend Reagan Gilliland to preach and lead in the church. That was orthodox at one time. Is that still orthodox? Or at one time it was orthodox to say the Bible says that slaves obey their masters, and so we're going to split the church because we're orthodox and we believe in slavery. Is that orthodoxy? Or maybe it was orthodoxy 2,000 years ago to tell this man who's paralyzed this because of his sin that he's laying there on that cot. Is that orthodoxy? If you can tell I'm getting a little heated, it's because I am. Because personally, I, I, believe that I, I believe that I've got a classical theology that some people would call orthodox. I believe in things like the bodily resurrection of Christ. I believe in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and Trinitarian theology and a whole lot of other stuff that you don't want to hear about right now, and I'm not going to go down those rabbit trails. And maybe you do or don't believe the same way that I do. That's okay. We're Christian family together. My point is this. As someone who would say, yeah, I hold to a fairly classical theology in the way that I understand God through a Christian lens, I can also understand those moments in time when we become painfully aware of how our orthodoxy, our certainty in understanding who God is and how God works becomes a source of shame and judgment for other people on this earth. And here is what I'm really working towards. What do we do when orthodoxy or our classical views or our certainty as to who God is and how God works becomes that source of shame or judgment? I believe that Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 5. If loving people paralyzed by shame and judgment means offending orthodoxy, then by God, so be it. 
I say that as someone who can stand proudly before my bishop and say, I am a classical Wesleyan of my theology. And you know what else? The second I realize that the way I understand who God is or how God works is hurting somebody in my life, I'm going to tell myself I need to be the one to consider how I change, not tell them you need to be filled with shame and judgment. And as a church, we have to be willing to offend what we think we know. Otherwise, we're repeating the mistakes of the Pharisees and the legal experts 2,000 years ago. We're no better than Bible and barstool, man. Jesus did not come to protect religious dogmatics at the expense of people, my friends. He came to liberate people at the expense of our certainty. I think what we think matters. I think the questions that we ask matter. I think what we believe matters. I think what we establish as doctrine matters. I think people matter more to God. That's the bottom line. And then there's this closing that we can skip over so easily because it kind of just sounds like a nice little happy ending, right? Jesus turns to the man who's paralyzed. And he says, I say to you, get up, take your cot, and go home. And right away, the man stood up before them, picked up his cot, and went home praising God. It says praising God. There's a Greek word there for praise, doxazo. He was doxazoing God. It's like, it's that same idea as the word for orthodox. It's like the right, the, the, the best possible opinion. He's shouting praises and honor to God. And this says, all the people were beside themselves with wonder, filled with awe. They doxazoed God. They glorified and praised God. And then Luke says, the people say, we've seen, and my Bible says, unimaginable things today. Maybe your Bible says unexpected or surprising. Mine says unimaginable things. That Greek word there is paradoxos. Same root as doxazo. The words are connected. Luke is having a little fun wordplay in Greek at the end of this story. And I, and I think that he's using these words with intention. The tricky thing is we're not precisely sure what Luke is exactly trying to say because that word he uses for unimaginable, unexpected, surprising, paradoxos, it's the only time it shows up in Scripture. It's the only time that word shows up in Scripture. And that makes it really hard to nail down what the definition is. But what we understand is that it means something, something contrary to what is certain, something contrary to what we think we know. You might even say that what the people are shouting as they're praising God is we have seen something wholly unorthodox happen today. We saw a man who wouldn't be allowed inside of a temple let into the Savior's home. We saw some friends climb up onto a roof and claw their way in to drop their friend inside. We saw the Son of God call himself the Son of Man and forgive sins before he tells them to stand up and walk. We saw the Pharisees and the legal experts who have a stranglehold over our sense of righteousness and sin get shut down by this 30-year-old hippie. We saw this man stand up and pick up his cot and walk out and praise, and we don't understand it, but we're singing the same song because that's what we want to be a part of. And so, my friends, this Lenten season, are we here to journey with Jesus in all the ways that we expect? Are we here to find a Savior that we are certain of, or are we open to allowing something wholly unorthodox to wake us up to change our hearts, 
to open us to the grace and love of God, perhaps in a way that we have not felt in a very long time. And then to allow us to be the kinds of friends who'll climb up on a roof and dig open a hole, to be the kinds of people who would follow in the footsteps, not of God's attorneys, but rather of a loving friend and shepherd. My friends, Jesus invites the paralyzed man to lay down his shame. And he invites the Pharisees to lay down their certainty. And he invites all of us to lift up an unorthodox love for the glory of God. May it ever be so. Amen.